0: In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose just one to watch. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? Where even narrowing down a genre can be a struggle. How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions okay then how about we watch an action film too many explosions i know i know let's watch a horror movie Oh, uh. dad just do an interview already welcome everybody to the Diecast movie podcast where this episode we have a special interview brought to you by my dad take it away dad
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the DieCast Movie Podcast. And today I'm doing an interview with internationally recognized award-winning director, Sergio Navarrete. How are you doing today, sir?
0: I'm great, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, thanks for uh, for, uh, sharing such a love and passion for cinema, for this art form. Really appreciate that.
1: Um, You're welcome. And my brother, my elder brother, Rick, got me that appreciation of it at a young age. He's eight years older than I am. So he was cinema, he was watching, he would take somebody, you know, you always want to take somebody with you. So usually I'd be the one going with him. And so it was helpful to develop that taste. Like I'm seeing movies that I probably shouldn't have seen, but it was good to have seen at a young age.
0: What do you remember the moment that was transformative where you watched the film and you thought, wow, this is like, you know, life changing and mind blowing.
1: It's hard to point point it down to one film when you're that age, but I would have to say when when he took me to see Quest for Fire um, with Ron Perlman in it, and um, that was that was just something that was I'm trying to think was I nine years old, ten years old, it was somewhere around that time frame, and um, you go and see it, and it was just it just blew me away, you know, you're just you're seeing something at a different level, and I think that's something that's missing in cinema nowadays is that a lot of times. When you have somebody younger, people tone the movie down, like like thumb it down, instead of finding that that happy medium where you're challenging the younger audience and still making it enjoyable for an older audience, but still enjoyable for the younger one. I think those are the films that have the legs that last forever.
0: I agree with you. Um, there are films that are absolutely universal in theme and uh, you know and and. In storytelling, frankly, because, you know, storytelling is one of the most ancient uh, art forms, uh, whether it was oral storytelling or, you know, the Greeks doing it on their amphitheaters. Um, the, you know, the, I, I always look back at films like Star Wars that now my eight-year-old is absolutely obsessed with. Um, you know, these stand the test of time. And you wonder, what was Lucas thinking? Um, who was he surrounded by? And w- how was he influenced? to tell such a impactful, such a story with depth that, that touches you on so many different levels. Like when I first saw it, I was a kid and I was blown away and it was, it was incredible, but I didn't understand the themes in it. You know, the yin and yang, some of those kind of pointing at, at Buddhist philosophy or, or, you know, the, the good versus evil and how there's a little bit of good and evil in all of us. And it's about making choices and, all of that, you know, it's very complex, uh, complicated themes that that, you know, when I hear interviews with Lucas now, it, it really resonates and hits home. And, and uh, I think some of that comes with age and emotional maturity, for sure, and experience. But, yeah, it's just such a powerful medium. And um, and those stories are, are, you know, stand the test of time, like I said. so.
1: Oh, I agree. And I think with Star Wars, using that as an example, that's a film where an eight year old sees that they're just looking at it for the fun ride. And then when, the, when you see it when you're a parent, you're able to still enjoy the fun ride, but now you're seeing other layers and so on. And, and so it has something you can, when you when you repeat watch it, you can see different aspects to it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. My son also pointed out and and referred to the fact that, you know, this idea of the magic that exists in the world and how our mindset can often affect our reality and to you know, we all have the ability to go to the dark side. And I think he, even at his age, was able to get that, which was really powerful.
1: Oh, I know. And I think that's why Lucas's films is standing the test of time. You know, I mean, all the whole tri- the whole original trilogy. I remember growing up and seeing in the movie theaters, waiting in the long line for the first one, you know, when it was just called Star Wars. None of this number four, New Hope and <laughs> all that stuff. Uh, magical time. Indeed, indeed. Now, for you, to reverse that question, what was a film that you saw or films uh, that you saw that made you think about, hey, this is something I want to do. I want to be a, a filmmaker or drew that interest into you to look into that field more?
0: Yeah, I think there were several. Um, just trying to think back, everything from Clint Eastwood, like my my uncle who was from Italy, lived with us for a while when he was very young and he would play you know, Beatle records on vinyl and watch, you know, Clint Eastwood movies. And so I was exposed to that from a very young age. And then, you know, he also (laughs) was obsessed with Star Trek. So I, uh, I had a lot of exposure to that as well. And then, you know, there was Italian films growing up that were very comforting for my parents who, you know, obviously Italian was their first language and leaving Italy was, probably very difficult for them leaving their family behind and everything they knew and moving to a new place that had completely different uh you know cultural nuances and and things that they just weren't used to um not to mention the weather so i think going to the local italian cinema that was located in toronto had a big impact on me as well and it sort of connected me to something you know, a lineage of something, a culture, that, and a heritage that I was very much connected to and a part of, and then and then there were films like you know Star Wars and ET, and and then later on even films like Dumb and Dumber. You know, <laughs> 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 the the impact that that movie had on me was this: I've never been in a space, a physical space, with three hundred people laughing from the first five minutes to the end in unison, and that communal joy. Um, an experience was something I never, I I, I did not take that for granted. I, I realized at that moment that, you know, the magic of cinema and the, the, the powerful effect it could have on people. And, uh, and when I met Lauren Holly many years later, that's all I can talk about is how, how dumb and dumb it was. So, I mean, it's hard to do that. It sounds silly, but like, it's really challenging to make a comedy that works. That's, so ridiculous, so outlandish and, but funny. And, um, and then I had the privilege of working with her on the Cuban, which was, uh, which was thrilling.
1: And comedy, as you said, is such a tough thing because everybody's humor is so different and what you can laugh at and find great. I might be like, eh, and vice versa. And it's, it's hard to have a comedy where it suddenly just hits the mindset of the everybody at the same time and just, and everybody just goes crazy for it.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I did a comedy called "The Colossal Failure of the Modern Relationship," and um, yeah, I really got to appreciate the that art form. This is like comedy; it's it's all about timing and the way things land, and and also depending on you know how it's edited. That that also has an effect on whether something's funny or not. Yeah, hats off to people that do that well. It's uh, it's definitely an incredible skill set to have.
1: I think and I think it's even tougher for people that are known to be funny. So when you go to them, you're already expecting you know you're going to laugh. So they better bring the goods. I think sometimes you have it better when you're when you're hitting people and you're blindsided them because you're coming from nowhere, and and then you're just like, wow, that person I never knew they were that funny or that, or, or whatever. But the people forget that they're actors. And if, actor, if they're good actors, they're giving good material and with good directing and good editing and so on, as you said, have a great performance. But timing is everything. Not every actor has that impeccable timing.
0: That is so true. I, I met Jeff Daniels, and I'm like, he's not funny. You know? <laughs> When I met him, he was just such a serious, you know, down-to-earth guy that it just kind of threw me a bit. You know, I, I expected him to be a little more wacky, and he wasn't. So, yeah, I mean, and, and then, of course, we've seen Jim Carrey in, in extremely serious dramatic roles and, and, uh, or the brilliance of someone like Robin Williams that can make you laugh and cry, you know, in the same movie. So definitely uh, a reflection of, of both innate uh, brilliance and, and also good training.
1: Oh, I agree. And what led to so those films help give you the idea you want to become a filmmaker growing up? If I remember hearing correctly, you you didn't exactly have your parents' um, full support in going into this type of field.
0: No, not at all. I mean, it's uh, also growing up, I didn't have access to people in the business. So it's not like I had mentors or or that experience reflected back to me. I didn't have any way to kind of model, uh, you know, someone that I knew growing up and say, oh, I want to be just like him or her. It's just, that never happened. And I think with all things, even though I was basically pushed on stage from the age of five and I've really always committed myself to the arts, uh, mostly, you know, by my mother, um, there was a strong, I guess, encouragement to pursue education and, you know, go to law school and get a real job. You know, my dad had certain work ethics and values. And I think growing up in an Im- immigrant household, um, that was important to them. And that's how we would, assimilate and stand out and and be successful is by getting educated and pursuing a career, a professional career, which, you know, everyone has different definitions for that. But I think for them, it was like, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a teacher, you know, uh, the typical things. So being a filmmaker was uh, completely out of left field for them, I think. But for me, it was home. It it incorporated all the things that I loved so much, uh, including music and uh theater and you know uh the wardrobe i I enjoy fashion i enjoy you know the the art and craft of acting it's something that i studied deliberately so i can understand it a little better uh when going into situations where i'm directing actors you know it's um it wasn't until i met a director quote-unquote a director a guy who had made a movie that I really thought, wow, this is possible. Like many people, you think you can only make movies in Hollywood. I didn't realize you can make movies anywhere. And there's a whole industry out there outside of Hollywood that uh, allows us to make films and tell our stories. And then I had this uh, serendipitous encounter with James Cameron, who was one of my heroes at the time. He had just done Titanic. And, you know, I told all my friends, I'm going to meet James Cameron, and they all thought I was crazy and uh just through some coincidence we'll call it and good luck i met him and the advice he gave me ignited something in me uh that set me on a path that uh you know i'd never look back so you know it's um i think we have to be open to to possibility and you need some level of delusion as well because on paper none of this makes sense even to even today when i look back i mean the incredible things that have happened that make this possible just seem seem unprobable. If, if, uh, if you speak to somebody like my dad, he would just say like, you know, your chances are one in a million, you know, but for some reason in my brain, in my soul, in my spirit, I want to, I want to take that one in a million shot. And so here we are.
1: Well, I think Michael Jordan, if I I remember correctly said it right, you always miss every shot you never take.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 100% 100% failure there.
1: So if you don't try, you're always going to – like if you if you took the path where you didn't try, then you'd be nowadays wondering, well, what if I would have done this path? And it's better, especially when you're younger and before you have a lot of um, – I guess we can call it more adult responsibilities, family, and so on, to go for it because it's less risk and there's more of a possibility of a reward. And I find people like yourself, whether actors, filmmakers – that were told by their family not to go into this, to have something else because you had to fight, not fight like in a sense where, you know, you're all upset with each other, but to uh, you're getting turned down when you get into the filmmaking business, whether actor, director, writer, as you know, it's a lot of failures before you get a success. You turn you turned down a lot of casting calls before you finally get the part, you keep writing scripts before you finally get the money to make the film. And I think that helps build that, that thing up where you're not used to getting your way and you have to have that drive to do it.
0: Yeah, it, I think it depends on your belief system. I I, um, I don't see them as failures. I see, I see the journey as steps. And there's often a tendency to want to skip steps. And that's when I mentor emerging filmmakers and artists. I say, you know, you cannot skip the steps. Like, you literally have to... And if you try to skip a step, life will knock you down so that you, you know, uh, climb that step one more time. And, um, And it's really, I think some of it is destiny, you know, like doors close for a certain reason so that it could lead you to another door that you're meant to be at. And I've certainly seen that so many times in my life. When one door closed, another one opened and it led me on a certain path. So as much as, you know, we believe we're in control, and we have free will. I think some of it is predetermined, and it's our job to get out of the way and tune out a lot of the negative chatter that we have in our brains. That is really just conditioning, and allow the flow of that to happen. And it's not just making movies; it's all things in life. And um, it's a constant learning. And you know, you're you're gonna face challenges regardless. Uh, you know, we all go into making a film thinking everything's going to be exactly the way we have it in our head and you know align with our vision and then it rains that day or you know uh an actor gets sick or whatever there's a million things that go quote unquote wrong but um eventually there's this magic that happens where everything clicks into place and everything comes together And, and certainly i've seen that happen many many times so
1: well, our household has a love for theater. My daughter graduated with a theater degree in production, and my son has acted in theater and, um, and did a little a movie project here for um, one of the health organizations, Heroin Still Kills, so he was in that. And my youngest son doesn't care to get into any of that at all, which is fine. But all three of them, I will always tell them, look for opportunities. And when you see the opportunity go for it. Talk to somebody. You know, you never know what interesting people you're going to meet and where that could lead to. My younger son, when he got his Eagle Scout, was sharing out with, uh, with the other guys in the troop saying that you should, when you see that, when you go to somebody, if you're waiting in the line, talk to the people around you in the line because you never know what their stories are going to be like. And I think with filmmakers, you get to, you get to take some stories and put them up there. But, a lot of those stories you developed were from talking to people around you and learning from them and finding out everybody's interesting. And, but most people don't take the time to learn about other people.
0: It's true. You learn a lot more by listening. Uh, and you know, people that know me in my inner circle know that when I hop into an Uber, it's going to be an hour long conversation about their life and where they're from and, you know, their, their experiences and et cetera, et cetera. And it's genuine. And, you know, I often don't tell them what I do because that doesn't matter. Um, And it doesn't come from a place of like, you know, tell my story because my life is so significant uh, because that happens as well, but it's more just a leading life with an open heart and a curiosity to learn and grow. And that's why I got into this business is to, it's a window into the world. You learn about different cultures and people and history. And um, every film that I take on, I learn something. And if I don't learn anything, then there's really no desire for me to, to do it. And, and also the impact piece is important. I mean, we're, we're here, you know, on this earth. You know, a million circumstances had to happen to bring us into life and then to sustain this life. So, you know, uh, why not make art that actually has a positive impact? And I think that's important.
1: Oh, I agree. And one of the things I noticed with your films, and I've watched quite a few of them that I was able to get a hold of, you know, through streaming or video on demand, whatever the case called for. A common thing is you talk about these different stories and different things that could have gone one way or another way, but none of your films are preachy. And I, I find some films where they'll talk about a certain, whether a cultural significance, relationship significance, or something, and they'll get a little heavy-handed with the message, is what I mean by preaching. Instead of just trusting the audience to discern what you're giving them.
0: Yeah, I, I, that was one of the comments when we premiered it in L.A., which was a an incredible experience. Um, was that you know the the Afghan nurse and the Cuban musician it all felt organic and natural and we come by it honestly, because that's, you know, growing up in a multicultural city, um, you know, that, that experience is very familiar to us. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's having a message is important, but, uh, you certainly don't want to do it in a, in a heavy handed way or, or, you know, soapbox. It's, you want to do it through, through the life of the character, through dialogue, through experience. And there's a, an old adage that said, show, don't tell. And, um, you know, we're striving to do that more and more as our, our films and our careers evolve. It's just, you know, I, I you know the, whenever I see a movie that has almost no dialogue, I'm always in awe of that. It's just, you know, there's a visual language and uh, a toolbox that we draw from that is powerful. And when used correctly, it can really affect people emotionally. So I really get excited about that.
1: And I'll say, you did a short, a four-minute short, The Fortune Cookie, which um, epitomizes that perfectly. No dialogue at all. And the acting and the filming with the music told you everything you needed to know, what was going on. I was able to follow, like, early on because I could tell the way Adam Waxman's character, was playing the character Dave, the way he was going to sit down at the restaurant, like he was all excited, you know, making sure everything was right. So I was like, this is a big moment. You know, I wasn't sure if the first, if it was a first date or whether something big was going to happen. And then you see (laughs) Miranda Calderon's character, Helen, come in and her body language and facial expressions. You could say, this is not going to go the way Dave is expecting it to
0: go. Yeah, that was a challenge. So that started with, hey, there's this new camera that's out. Let's go do some tests and see how it reacts in low light. And uh, practical life. And that's where it started. And then, you know, 24 hours, or I I think it was about 24 to 48 hours later, I reached out to Miranda and Adam and I said, you know, are you guys into this? I want to do something that has no dialogue, it's just visual. And it literally just came together that way. And those are the experiences that get me excited because there's no stakes. There was absolutely no pressure to, you know, get international sales and big stars and you know nobody was like breathing down our necks to get things done on a certain timeline so you really get to play and um so i really enjoyed that experience and uh we literally had the actors the dop and a sound person and me um and we're just running around chinatown in toronto uh shooting and uh yeah it was a great experience it was fun to do
1: what i love about the your angle was the cinematography when they're in the restaurant listeners, we're, we, as the audience are outside the restaurant. So it's almost like we're sitting on the bench and you see this couple and you're watching what's going on for the window and you can pretty much figure out what's happening, you know, from that. So to me, that was the perspective. Like I'm sitting on the bench, you know, waiting maybe for my ride or somebody, you know, you never know. And you're just looking around it, and of course you see this right there. Cause it's happening right on the other side of the window. And, uh, uh, it's just one of those things you're people watching and you, you can just see what's going down you don't hear any of the things going on but you can see what is happening and that's the, that's the perspective I came in as the viewer
0: yeah and that's uh, that's sort of like a day in the life of me <laughs> you know like <laughs> whenever I'm on a train, a plane a re- in a restaurant like uh, people that are close to me it drives them crazy because I'm always uh, tuned into conversations happening around me and things that are going on. That often, you know, others don't notice, and uh, this is my life. It's it's uh, you know, being a film director is not so much a career; it's more of a vocation, and um, and there's really no no turning it off. Uh, if that makes sense,
1: I think it, I think you're right. And when you said about not having people there as a supporting and starting off, it kind of reminds me with a lot of independent filmmakers that I talked to started off on their own, with really just seeing film. It's almost like you're, you're a guy. You guys are a throwback to the olden days when there was no book. You know, it's like here's the camera. You know, let's figure out how how to do it as we do it, type thing. And then it was like decades later when there finally became, you know, formal education to it. It was almost more of an apprenticeship. Well, once people figured out, then it was an apprenticeship
0: program in a sense. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I wish. You know, the film directors would have the opportunity to do it more often. Like I think unless you work in TV, you know, we're the. it's like Alexander Payne said to me, the director is the one with the least hours on set and experience, you know, because we go from film to film, but the, the lull or the downtime is long as we develop new projects. So whereas the, the, the grip or the sound person has probably been working the entire year nonstop. So I, I think a lot of it is through experience and learning and problem solving. Yeah, it's, it's definitely experiential. Like you can watch all the movie, all the, all the movies you want, uh, take the courses, the master classes, the whatever, whatever. But you got to get in the trenches and just and just do it. Um, I, I find that to be true.
1: Oh, I agree with you. And one of your your first feature league film, "Looking for Angelina," is aptly titled because. All I could on. find for it is a trailer. I'm still looking for Angelina, the film.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's an enigmatic character for sure. And to this day, I mean, the it, you know the the, the case was uh, based around uh, an immigrant Italian immigrant woman moves to New York with her family, and then eventually ends up in Canada and was in a, an abusive marriage uh, where he tried to push her into prostitution and abused her badly and eventually on Easter Sunday um, she murdered him with an axe and it became one of the most sensational murder cases in Canadian history and for 1911 she had over a million petitions to have her um, she was sentenced to hang to death so to have her sentence uh, overturned she had a million petitions like little hand cut 10 written petitions, many of them that I've seen in the archives. And um, this is such a remarkable story. So, yeah, even after making the film, uh, we did a year and a half research, meeting anyone who knew anything about it. Um, we still haven't met anybody from from the family. And for a long time, we didn't know where she w- she was even buried. Uh, that came out later. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was an incredible story. And it was literally funded as a documentary so you know we took that money to make a documentary which is a tiny amount of money went away and, and built out this entire feature film project a period piece with hundreds of chickens and children and extras and we have to rebuild the entire set uh, of little italy 1911 to saint marie ontario canada and uh, it was all shot in 14 days so it was definitely a tour de force um, it ended up going to movie theaters which was completely unexpected and it sold out screenings for weeks so it was a bit of an anomaly and i think that's due to the fact that it's it's highly sensational it's it's an emotional journey and it touches people in different ways whether they have direct experience with domestic violence or whether they resonate with the the racial part of it um or just the, the immigrant experience in general. And so, yeah, it was, it was for my first film, it was a a very intense, uh, you know, experience, but when you don't know anything, it affords you the opportunity to do the unthinkable and that's what happened.
1: And and for listeners that don't know the story, I was able to find like a a thing on YouTube talking about the historical aspect of her past. When you say abusive relationship, you're, you're putting it mildly because from what I understand, he stabbed her in one incident, like what five or six times, and where she had to be hospitalized for a couple of weeks, and he was let go by the judge to go back to work because they they figured he had to support the family.
0: That's right. Yeah, I mean the, the 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 legal system was not kind to her. The fact that she was a woman, the fact that she was an immigrant, you know, there were many reasons. There was no, they couldn't. There was no precedent for for the you know, provocation as an argument. Yeah, so they just threw the book at her and they really wanted to make an example of her. The outcry, the just the overwhelming amount of support, I think is what saved her ultimately because it was an embarrassment to the Canadian government. And, you know, it sort of um, revealed to us and to audiences what had happened and, and just acknowledge a little bit of that history where, you know, they were immigrants were referred to as, uncontrollable violence, uh, prone to, you know, crime and et cetera, et cetera, which of course is all untrue. This case was an exception and, and many people in the town in her, you know, where she lived were frankly embarrassed by it. And, um, you know, they tried to support her quietly, but, uh, they were just afraid of what would happen. This was a black mark on, on the community that had worked so hard to get organized. They had, uh, come up with their own, um, you know, healthcare system within the community, their own sort of education, their own businesses. Um, um, But, you know, this one individual fell through the cracks. And for whatever reason, I mean, we tried to explore the male character as well to give him more depth. And I think it works. I mean, there's a breakdown there. There's mental illness, there's substance abuse. He was drinking, he he got in with the wrong crowds, uh, doing the wrong things. And then he started to spiral and um, never to justify what he did, but just to understand. And I think for me as a filmmaker to pretend that I felt the responsibility to unpack that a bit and get down to the truth of what, what really happened as opposed to just portraying him as evil, bad guy. Um, I can't, for some reason, I can't do that. Well, I think think humans are nuanced, right?
1: Exactly. And I think that's important for people to know is because people always think oh, this will never happen in our community because, whatever, they rationalize it and not understanding that. If you understand why people did what they did, then you can actually help other people from possibly going down that same path. And I think that's what I I agree with you about, trying to understand why people make the choices that they do so you can help other people from avoiding that same negative outcome.
0: Yeah, and and the biggest revelation for me was uh, it it was a paradigm shift that, I learned that, uh, you know, family violence and domestic violence in general doesn't have a face or a type or a look, you know, it could happen anywhere. And I, you know, we've had, we had hundreds of screenings, public screenings where people would stand up and say, I was married to the chief of police and he was abusive to me, or I was married to a prominent lawyer and he was abusive or, you know, like it was story after story after story. And, Um, You know, the whole social action campaign that went alongside the release of the film, I'm really proud of because it was then that it sort of like crystallized this idea that we can make change in the world through this medium. Uh, This is more than just selling overpriced popcorn or just sheer entertainment. This is a a powerful art form that, if utilized in the right way, could actually affect change. And that that for me was was uh, exciting.
1: And, and to me, the, 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 the weird thing is if she would not have been pregnant at the time the trial was going on and had her hanging delayed because they wanted her to go through the, the pregnancy, yeah. it probably would have been done before any of this letter writing campaign and any of the um, media that was running with it could have done anything to change the outcome. And you probably never would have known anything about it. It would have been a footnote because it wouldn't have had that international recognition
0: that is true that is absolutely true and um and you know it's it's just the whole thing was heartbreaking um but what it did is it it gave us the opportunity to learn about our history because i think many times canadians suffer from an identity crisis you know i i came i grew up in an immigrant household um didn't quite fit into canadian culture because i couldn't define it i didn't know what it was and i felt there was some Truth there that they needed to be uncovered, and I really believe that in order to not fragment as as a society or as a as a person, you have to acknowledge all your parts and and heal. And uh, I don't think that healing really ever happened, at least for me. So to to see a story that was like that could have been that could have been me, it could have been my family or my neighbor or whatever. You know, it was so close to home. I think that that was uh, very moving. And also learning the presence of the KKK in Canada. That's something, you know, we often, you know, say, well, that, that never happened here. That was only, you know, in the U.S. and the Deep South. That's, we're Canadian. That You know, that would never happen here. And it did happen. They burned crosses in Little Italy um, at the, at, you know, early 1900s. The Italians got together and just basically ran them out and they never came back. But um, but I had met people that were descendants of... I met a granddaughter of a KKK member. And those are the stories that reflect back to us who we are as, as people, as a society. We're collectively all a part of this history as Canadians. So uh, it was just... For me, it was invaluable. And, uh, and often when I tell these stories, Canadians just look at me with this blank face like, that can't be true, you know? Um, but it is. So that's... Uh, uh, Again, the power of cinema.
1: Oh, I agree, and I think that's where well, it's nice that you're able to bring a light to that, so people realize. Because if, if, as we all know, if you forget your past, then things can be repeated again. And by by making sure that people never forget about certain things, then they realize, okay, this is what this is why we do things what we're doing now, so we don't have a repeat of the past or circumstances.
0: Well, it's it's amazing how quickly the past can can bubble up and repeat. And, you know, it's uh, something that we have to be cognizant of and, and very aware of, um, you know, we're, we're in a time now that's very complicated and uh, for whatever reason, whether it's political or whether, you know, it's, uh, you know, civic health, emergency action, whatever, uh, you know, I'm starting to see censorship and, and, uh, and freedoms and liberties being compromised. And that is scary. Um, and I don't even know if, if there's like a, a secret agenda or a plan or it's just happening by circumstance. But the, the fact of the matter is that there are certain people that, that right now in North America can't voice their opinions freely. So that to me is scary. Oh, I'll I, just, I'll leave it at that.
1: And I'll, <laughs> I'll just say, I agree with you. And I think we're focusing on movies and I think I'll go with you. We'll, we'll just move off of that topic because as you said, it is a hot button issue with, um, And I think the only thing I'll say to it is if people take time to discuss things with each other and understand where everybody's coming from and treat each other with more kindness, then people can understand points of view and then come to it. And I come to a conclusion that this is why people are doing that. And this is why I'm doing this. And then people can, once you have that understanding, you're less likely to have those riffs.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, um, I'll apply it to cinema because it, it is important. Um, It's important for artists to feel free to tell stories. And, you know, over the years, I've met filmmakers from places like Iran and where where they don't feel free to tell their stories. And um, I think it's important for artists to to be able to express freely and make the films that they want to make. I mean, it's once that freedom becomes curated and people start telling me, you only have to make this kind of film, then for me, the joy of it, uh, is gone you know it's uh, right now sky's the limit in terms of the types of subject matter I can explore and characters and people and cultures and I think that's the beauty of it is the fact that it allows us to, to come together and um, when I used to go to film festivals around the world it was so exciting to sit across from a filmmaker from Turkey or, or wherever and we don't speak the same language but as soon as you know, I bring up Fellini or or Kubrick, they just light up, you know. And and uh, and I think that you know that is important is, is really acknowledging how cinema does bring us together, and uh, and that's the beauty of it.
1: I think that's the the great thing about the creative arts. And kind of funny, this next movie I'm bringing up, it's almost like the title of it almost fits with what we were just talking about a little bit: the colossal failure of the modern relationship. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's a
1: mouthful, it's a mouthful, but it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of like the title, the colossal failure of modern understanding almost, but the modern relationship, I know you, you labeled it as a comedy. When I was watching it, to me, it was more of a comedy slash drama because I think there's a lot of comedy in it, but the comedy under, you know, because you had the tension ratcheting up and then the comedy yeah. brings that tension release at the, at nice times. And I really enjoyed it. And it just to give, if you, I was wondering if you can give people like the, uh, the, the 30 second overview of what the movie's about, but it, cause it's out there for, I, I was able to rent it for two hours on Amazon prime. So it's, it's readily available.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, um, for us, it was really an exploration of, of the modern relationship, which has become so complicated. I mean, with, with gender roles, sort of, becoming more fluid and confusion around who we need to show up as, whether you're male, female, or, or uh, transgender, it doesn't matter. It's, I think it applies to all relationships is that the ability to understand one another, um, what we bring to the party and how we take responsibility for our own stuff. I think that to me was at the heart of, of the film and, and, and removing the judgment from it, you know, whether, there's infidelity you know in the movie and people make certain choices that's sort of like an aside what's more important is that whether it was freddie the male character or cat the the what they failed to do is take responsibility for their own baggage and and for their choices and um yeah i think i, I think ultimately what it comes down to is freddie's inability to take responsibility for his actions and and what he as the male partner in the relationship brought to the party. And, um, it really examines, you know, how like gender plays a part in that, in that, in that specific relationship and, and how there's confusion around that as well. And, um, and it's just, you know, like I said, it's, it's really, I think both parties, fail to take responsibility for their actions and even though Kat at the end comes around and, and apologizes for for her actions it's it really, I think by then the, the relationship is completely eroded and, um, and you know we were just curious at kind of uh, exploring the notion of the modern relationship and where are we and what does it mean nowadays and how has it changed uh, as I said, our grandparents probably married for different reasons and the criteria now and the expectation has become so high. There's a massive list of, you know, if this happens, then I will love you. And all these conditions that come along with it. Whereas our grandparents were just surviving. It was after the war. And, you know, it's uh, my grandfather had a trucking company and, and my grandmother was a homemaker and she was trying to, you know, run the household and raise the kids. and The, the roles were very clear there wasn't a lot of talk about fulfillment and, you know, falling in love and out of love and all this kind of stuff that we talk about nowadays. So ultimately, I think the message of the causal failure of the modern relationship is that your mindset, your focus and your choices and what you bring to the party or quote the party, but meaning the relationship really will determine the outcome. And And also that as soon as you become complacent and take a relationship for granted, it may start, you know, you're, it's either growing or dying. And uh, so I think uh, in that relationship in particular, we examined that, that at a certain point it started to die and nobody noticed or took action or, or took responsibility. So, um, you know, we, we sort of masked it as, as a comedy, but you're right. There are dramatic moments and uh, and beautiful performances by actors that, that I absolutely love.
1: Oh, there, there were some great performances. I'm, I mean, Krista Bridges as Kat really was able to sell a complicated character because she's the one that's having the extra – well, I shouldn't say extra married affair because we find out they're not married. But, you know, she ha- she's having an affair from the relationship. uh um, right. With another character um, played by David Cubitt, Richard a- Avery. Because that's established yeah. right off the right, – on the opening credits. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you're
1: right. You know, there's no, but you also see her playing the piano, and um, so certain things, you know, that that were missing in her relationship with Freddie, who was played wonderfully by Enrico Colantoni. Uh, Colantoni. Colantoni.
0: Who we who we remember from uh, Veronica Mars and Just Shoot Me? I I mean I'm dating myself, but I remember him from Just Shoot Me, and I loved him in that show with David Spade. So <laughs> I geeked out on that.
1: Yeah, when I saw him, I'm like, wait a minute, I know that face, and and immediately you know <laughs> I had to pause the movie and then and go you know because once you're in your mind you got it you got to look him up because otherwise you're going to be constantly trying to figure out where you know him from the rest of the movie. And I was just, as you said, yeah. those things. And also I remember galaxy quest, you know, and, uh, it's
0: galaxy quest. Did you see the nod to galaxy quest? There was a moment where he did the, the robot thing on the porch and I kept it in the movie just for fun. But, uh, yeah, we, we had such a laugh that day,
1: <laughs> but he, you know, but, her character is just, because she is secretive, you know, um, because she's hiding that she smokes and all this other stuff. And so she's used to keeping these secrets. Um, and I think that was one part of the aspect why the relationship didn't work because they weren't being truthful either. And the other part was Freddie's character um, being so distant, you know, so reserved. And, and either one could affect the relationship in a bad part. But when you have two things going on that at the same time, it really... It's, it makes the relationship more doomed
0: yeah and i mean there were certainly things uh things about that freddie character that i could relate to i mean there, there's there's a huge risk in allowing yourself to love and be loved and um you know oftentimes we hide behind our masks and uh i, I think freddie was so shut down and closed and protecting himself from any kind of risk that he he denied himself the joy of love um you know so it was interesting and and enrico played a, a huge role in and krista as well in developing those characters and making them real and really putting their heart and soul into it you know i think krista is a complicated person in a good way and um you know she doesn't have to say anything the camera picks all that up and uh and we feel that so yeah it's uh it was it was great working with them and David Cubitt, of course, uh, was amazing. And, you know, I think he resisted playing this kind of antagonistic character. Um, So it was different for him. Um, But uh, just such incredible actors. And, of course, shooting in wine country made it so joyful. (laughs) That that movie we shot on a credit card, believe it or not. (laughs) We shot it in a couple of weeks on a credit card and uh, just got a bunch of friends together and partnered with the local um local college so they put they um you know their culinary arts department practiced on us and we mentored their film students and uh, you know all our keys were experienced seasoned people like my dp had been shooting films for 40 plus years but all his crew were just starting out and um it was very inclusive and i think that kind of model works because everyone is excited to go to work that day you know the the ones starting out are gonna are so excited to learn and be on set and the the others the keys that were around for a while uh set off the energy of that excitement of of trying new things and like we didn't have a dolly for example so peter had his van there and had a a long ladder and he put skateboard wheels on it and you know now we have a dolly so it was that kind of innovation and excitement to try new things that uh that made it so so fun uh it was you know a lot of actors that said it was like being in film school again and you know it's uh, i think that was uh, exciting for everyone
1: well I, I mean it shows that they i think for my thing like the way they're all putting in great performances and i think a lot of times you can tell it's a good set when you see the actors enjoying what they're doing and and yes there's there's parts that are very touching you know and there's also parts that are very humorous I'm, I'm never going to forget the um, the massage scene you know that's just something that's <laughs> with
0: that you know it's funny that um, a friend of mine we were at dinner and she told me that story that that actually happened something similar and I just I couldn't help but use that in the movie and uh, and the way it was played by the actors too it was hilarious like I had never laughed so hard in my life and even watching the outtakes and I think we did that that scene about twelve times, so uh, it's just priceless uh, moments that that I'll remember forever. Anthony, <laughs> Every time I get a massage, in fact,
1: Anthony DeLuca uh, was was just uh, what can you say? He owned he, he owned this, when he got on top of Freddie to do the massage. <laughs> he was doing this, you're just watching it and it's just you just can't help but laughing at what's going on, and, and you just feel so sorry for poor Freddie. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I think part of that was authentic. Uh, some was acting, but some of it was genuine, like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening.
1: <laughs> yeah, because I'm not sure how much you told Anthony DeLuca to do or how much it was, like, on his own, but it was just – he was definitely getting into the role.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you, uh, Enrico had no idea what was going to happen, and I looked at, uh, at DeLuca, and I was just like, I whispered in his ear. I said, "Just go for it." He said, "Yeah, but it's Enrico, man." I'm, I'm like, "I don't want to." He's like, "I don't want to upset him or offend him." I said, "Listen, he's an actor. Whatever you throw at him, as long as everyone's safe and you know, uh, consenting, um, he's gonna he's gonna go he's gonna go with it." And that's exactly what happened. He literally just jumped on top of him, and and Enrico, in his in his brilliance and experience, just uh, responded so authentically. So it was great. It was fun to do.
1: Uh, still like, I want you to stop, please. Your hands are like sandpaper. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> and then,
0: yeah, and then all, when, from, all from real life. You can't make this stuff up.
1: Oh, I know. I, I, I could just imagine. You know, being the, being the poor. Knowing my luck, I'd be the guy that would get stuck with the the Enrique. You know, what happened to Freddie? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, same.
1: <laughs> now, the Cuban. I saw this because I was preparing to do an interview with. Mr. Gossett, which I just did recently, and your and your interview is going to come out the episode after his. So this is going to be coming out in the early in um, early to mid November. He told me when I met him at a convention, I mean, he agreed to the interview for later on. He said you have to watch the Cuban, and it's going to make you cry. And um, th- those wow. those are the two things that he told me, you know, about it prior to me seeing it. And uh, so I went into the Cuban expecting the emotional thing, and and yes, yes, it is. It is tear jerky, but I've used a different word when I was talking to him for the movie than he probably was thinking. And when I got done watching the movie,
0: I thought it was beautiful. Thank you you so much. I'm I'm honored. And, uh, it means so much, you know, it's, uh, when you set out to make a movie, you just don't know who it's going to touch and how many people are going to see it. And so the fact that it's moving people and we're getting just such positive reaction from it, um, it, it just means so much. And, and, uh, it's a testament to the fact that, you know, this is a team sport, um, you know, it's a collaborative art form. And we all came together with love and passion and aligned with the same vision of the story that we wanted to tell. So everyone was there for the right reasons. And I think, I think that shows.
1: Well, I mean, for those that haven't seen it, this, this is available in video on demand because of COVID it didn't get the proper release it would normally would have. And should have gotten, sadly. I mean, you know, you can't go back in time and change things. It, it it you know, what happens, happens. But it it is just a wonderful film that should be seen. I mean, it the music, the the cinematography, the acting is just excellent, but it sets the tone right off the bat with the opening credits. Which reminded me of your short film, I'm not sure if I'm gonna say this right, but in plain air two. The, the, when I saw that one afterwards, I was like, oh, this is, you know, I wondered at that any influence of you doing the opening credits
0: for the in this way. Um, I think there was a little bit of that, um, a little bit of over a small cup of coffee, which was my first film. And it, uh, I really took my time with it. So the artist who hand painted uh, the opening was Peter Nally, who's a brilliant classically trained artist and VFX supervisor. And I reached out to him and I said, are you interested in, working on this, he said, as long as, you know, there's no uh, strict, like, timeline, I'll work on it, you know, between between my work and, and other commitments, and um, he just sat there and hand-painted everything, it was just so beautiful, and then once we entered the nursing home, I, you know, I, I, I called it the ballet, uh, it was really meant as a one-take, and it, it really is to set the tone and bend time, and really slow time down. Um, have us enter this kind of like muted, desaturated world of the mundane and and the sad frankly, you know, being in a nursing home like that wouldn't be the way that I would want my life to end you know, the final chapter of my life so that's what I wanted to create and hopefully, hopefully that's what comes across uh, because then once we enter the world of his imagination, you, you notice everything goes in and full, you know, primary colors, uh, everything pops and, um, both auditorily, like by sound, uh, but also visually. And, um, and the team did such a great job in helping me to execute that.
1: And for those that haven't seen the Cuban, um, what would be a, if you can give a brief synopsis of it so that way people would know what the movie is about. And, you know, basically give, give, give your pitch for them to come put this on video on demand and play this movie. Because they should play.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so the movie is about a young Afghan nurse um, who befriends this elderly gentleman in a nursing home. And through the course of the film and through their interactions, we discover that he was a one-time famous Cuban musician, and he has Alzheimer's. So they really connect on a heart level. It's an unlikely relationship. And I think what brings them together is their common story of you know, being fish out of water and immigrant in a new country and uh, the feelings of isolation and just not being heard or understood. So they, you know, they come together through music. She plays music to him. And as many people know now, scientists and doctors are studying the effect the positive effect of music on the brain. Um, So he, he starts off in this very catatonic state and then slowly starts to come back to life. And, you know, I've, had the privilege of experience of seeing that in, you know play out right in front of me uh, through with Alzheimer's patients and and people playing music that's familiar to them and how that impacts their lives and it's just it's incredible to see. Um, so to commit that to film that that was uh, it was an amazing experience and of course once you you add in a living legend like Bluegrass Junior or Shere who who's Oscar nominated for her work on House to Sand Fog. These are, you know, these are actors that I've always wanted to work with, and uh, they just bring such a, a level, a depth, um, that is, you know, his performance is so subtle, and quite nonverbal, and, uh, you know, he just deserves all the accolades. You know, we, we eventually ran an Oscar nomination race, and um, it was, you know, we were like the 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 underdog of the year, um, but uh, it really is a testament to his brilliant he he really you know Mr. Gossett is a living legend
1: and he's definitely somebody that embodies the full kindness is the way to go about living life and he takes it so true to his heart and you can just tell when he's portraying Luis Garcia it's amazing how the film goes and if this happens early on so I'm not spoiling anything for anybody but his and me and his relationship I look at it in a ways that both of them are reawakened by music to what they're missing in life, and you know, Luis Garcia, you know, obviously not having, is starting to forget things and is just living out his days almost like it was a sentence. You know, like you, you you're not going to do anything except sit here and do that. And Mina reawakens that life in him to live, to enjoy what's going on. And then by doing that, that reawakens in her the joy she had in the past with music that she was putting aside for her pre-med, focusing only on her studies because her aunt wants her to get it done. You know, get your studies done, get your studies done. Let's get this done quickly. And now knowing your past history, I can see there's a little bit of a um, projection, possibly, with Mina's characters and yours and your parents and the aunt.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm a little like a solar system you know uh at the core at the center, and then everything else orbited around that and if you notice even the bono character was affected by music uh you know Mina's love interest chris you know has a connection to music and and you know plays on the guitar which is all real by the way We, we recorded them on set practically playing singing um as much as we could and um you know it's 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 amazing. I mean, music has always played a huge role in my life. So for me, it was, it was a way of honoring that. And, um, you know, working with people like Hilario Duran, who's Grammy nominated pianist originally from Cuba, but now living in Canada, you know, that was a dream come true. Those are collaborations that, you know, when you, when you're surrounded by, by excellence and brilliance and that level of, of commitment, um, it just brings your game up. And, I often equate it to sports, you know, it's, uh, this is really a team sport and having the best players on your team just elevates your game, but also the overall experience, because when someone like Luke Ossa Jr. shows up on set, he lights it up and, you know, I would play music on set every day between takes and, and he would come out dancing and singing, no matter what was going on, you know, he, he just he just made sure that he made everyone's day a little bit better and acknowledged everybody along the way. So those are things that I remember about it. And, um, and he had such an impact on my life, uh, that, uh, you know, I'm forever grateful for that. Uh,
1: uh, uh, Mr. Gossett is just amazing. And, um, I don't know if you knew or not, but he co-wrote the song, handsome Johnny with Richie Havens.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I did know that. I, uh, when we when we were doing research for the film, I don't know how I came across this picture of him in the '60s with a guitar, and uh, that was really an inspiration that we I drew upon the whole the whole time. Like we had it, you know, as part of our package as we were visualizing and dreaming up the whole thing. It was uh, it was amazing to have that photo. But yeah, I did know that uh, he had a musical background.
1: It's just amazing, and one of the things he brought up in his interview. The lead female actor, Anna Golja? Yes. He said, and I, I, a friend of mine, I think I'm quoting, she's going to be a star. Because you can just tell she she can act, she can dance, she can sing, and for, for film, the camera loves her.
0: <laughs> yeah, there, there's some people that have that charisma. And uh, certainly she has the musical talent and the acting chops to... To be great and uh you know it's um it was interesting seeing that raw talent uh coupled with someone like lou who has 60 plus years of experience and has worked with everyone and studied at the actor's studio with marilyn monroe and brando and i mean there's not a lot of people in the world today that can tell that story so so yeah that, that was it was thrilling and of course anna is, is a is a force and uh And really, that's where it started. It was one encounter that I had with her at an industry event uh, where we just expressed interest in working together. And I said, even if it's just a short film, low stakes, like, let's just create something. And from that one conversation, it led to, you know, where we are today. So you just never know.
1: Now, from my understanding, when you were writing this film, you pretty much were writing it for these different actors. You know, so you, you had in your mind, which thankfully they all agreed to do it, because otherwise, I guess you would have been in a uh, a bind. But is that correct?
0: It is correct. Uh, Alessandra Pichon wrote the script. Uh, did a beautiful job writing it and and doing the research. And uh, yeah, I had I had uh, Mister Gossett in mind from day one. I couldn't imagine anyone else in the role. Uh, the role of um, Bono, the aunt, Shorayak Dashlu. Um, Anna originally wasn't even supposed to be in the film because uh, it originally was a grandfather-grandson. And, and I changed that um, so that uh, so that she could play the lead. So that role was written for Anna. Um, and she was a producer on it as well. And I'm just trying to think. Yeah, I mean, it, I just got super lucky that everybody I had envisioned said, yes. Yeah. you know, um, wasn't always easy. You know, like, uh, to get an actor to commit sometimes takes takes some time and work but and effort. But, uh, yeah, everything just lined up with this film. And it just pulled us along like a bull, you know. Um, I guess it was meant to be, guess it wanted to be ma- to be made. So, um, yeah, it was one of those miracles that, that definitely happens. And
1: I'm glad that, you know, in hindsight, because I'll never know what it'll look like the other way. But I'm glad you made the switch you know, from the grandson-grandfather aspect, because I think that added extra dynamics, because you're able to have two immigrant stories. And, again, there's nothing preachy about this movie. It's just basically these are the stories. And I love the aunt's story, because it's told so subtly. And without being, you know, like, why she left you know, Afghanistan and why she came to America and, you know, this kind of stuff and, and why she is so protective of Mina and, and, and wanted to make sure she does things right. It's it, it, was, it was so nice to see how you did that with pictures and words said between characters that were just, you know, where it was there and you can put the things together, but it wasn't like, again, you know, um, forced upon you.
0: Well, yeah, it's, uh, I think someone like Shari Agdashlu brings so much to that experience, to that character that, uh, I mean, we spent six months just trying to understand, you know, the, the, the subtleties and the the nuances of, of Afghan culture. Like, you know, I call it my Afghan family. We used to have many, many dinners, um, you know, where Shari would invite us over and we'd all have dinner together and just talk, talk through, uh, all these things. And, um, And some of that backstory, she just brings, brings out so beautifully. There's nothing obvious or, or heavy handed about it. It, You know, when she's sitting down on the couch and she's playing the record and she's drinking a glass of wine, it's incredible how the audience knows everything that's going on in her head, in her heart. And she doesn't have to say anything. And that's brilliant acting, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I just, I, I, I remember whispering one little thing in her ear and then she just went off and just delivered this beautiful performance. So that's, you know, that's what you get when you work with someone so brilliant.
1: I mean, you were, you were blessed to have such brilliant actors, you know, in the movie and the material that was written for them worked hand in hand. You know, I mean, it was just how they were able to bring these characters to life. And again... I know it sound like a broken record for people, but you really should see this movie because we can't really talk too much about it without spoiling what happens. But it was just, <laughs> Mr. Gossett did say, yes, you will cry. That's true. But I think it's 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 beautiful how it shows, for me, life isn't just existing. Life is worth living.
0: Yes. Yes. And that's the message, really. You know, it's um, it's an I. I it's an idealistic view at how we would all want to leave this world, you know, go out in a bank. And, uh, and he was able to do it his way, regardless of what the system said, regardless of what the nursing home rules were. He broke all the rules, and, and you know, he went out the way he wanted to go out. And that's a really beautiful idea. And ultimately, I think, from what I've experienced at, at public screenings, is that people have a great time. They love the Afro-Cuban jazz, the energy of it, the um, the colors, the, the cinematography, all, all that plays into, you know, I, I, I believe it has a good balance of, of fun. Uh, the music certainly pays off. And the energy of Afro-Cuban jazz and, and Cuban culture, I think that comes through. Um, and the, life is bittersweet. And I think that's the nature of the Cuban
1: and the only thing I want to mention with the Cuban is you also did some filming in Havana, correct? Like you did some yes. filming in Cuba. How was how that, how was that like, you know, the logistics and everything because you know, you're, you, are you, i am not sure. Is this, was that your first time going outside the country to do a film?
0: Yes. Yeah. It was, um, we probably need another hour to just <laughs> do a deep dive into shooting in Cuba. But like, you know, the Cuba thing came out of my dad's like, obsession with cuba and my disdain for the you know just the, uh the you know the, i don't want to say the politics but they're just in a very uh, unfortunate situation where they're not fully able to realize their dreams and goals and and there is um you know for for a culture that's so bright and beautiful i i just had my own preconceived notions of what it was and i had never been there so we started traveling down and I absolutely fell in love with the country with the people the culture and one thing the biggest lesson for me is that there's something incredible about the art of surrendering and even though I had a clear vision of what I wanted um you know every day there were challenges that would prevent me from seeing that vision through so I had to adapt and pivot and what we ended up shooting uh none of that was ever planned um so that, that, you know, I just learned the, how important that is, is that to have a vision, to have a plan, but sometimes you have to throw it out the window and just work with the elements and what you have in front of you. And I just remember laying in bed saying, you know, I'm I'm in trouble. Like the the nightclub is not available now. We, we already mapped out everything. You know, what's tomorrow going to look like? And it didn't matter. You know, once I leaned into the rhythms of that culture and, you know, drank, Cuban rum and smoke cigars um, and not worried so much about tomorrow, that's when most of the inspiration happened for me. And that was a huge breakthrough, creatively. It sounds
1: like it. It sounds like the, the culture has won you over. I don't know, Do you have time to talk about one other movie that you did as a producer? Sure. Okay. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because not just besides being a director, you also are an executive producer. And um, you did Arctic Dogs. So what As executive producer for listeners, like what was your involvement with Arctic Dogs, which is on Netflix for those that want to see it? You know, it's out there, it's readily available, it's an animated film.
0: Yeah, the experience of it was (laughs) a trial by fire. Um, it was, I, I didn't know anything about how animation is made, I had some ideas, of course, but um, it was just a series of circumstances, uh, where you know, uh, production, distribution, investment group sought me out and we had conversations about maybe doing this. And it really started on a napkin when someone named Matt Lyon had a, the seat of an idea and it was presented. And then we took that idea to Cannes and I brought together um, the, an animation studio with some of the, some of the key players in that brought it back to Canada and, and we started assembling a team. It was, Literally, I had to learn everything from the ground up and um, massive learning through that experience. But um, it was so gratifying because I knew the end goal was kids and families. And the, um, the thesis really is it's the story of acceptance and following your dreams. And, you know, to have worked in that capacity, overseeing all aspects of production, I was there throughout all of the casting process and, and working with that level of talent, working with the artists on the ground every day at the studio, um, seeing it all come to get course of four years very exciting. And then fast forward, you know, in New York city on, in times square, there's massive billboards promoting the movie. And when I was in LA, there were bus shelters and buses going by with a poster on it. And it was a different experience. And, you know, I was so exhausted after that, that I, where I'd never do it again, but uh, now, you know, with our company Snap Films, we're developing another animated property, and uh, and it's reignited my excitement for it because when I see in the eyes of children the gratification and the inspiration that we're able to to share through that medium, it's powerful. And animation is like pandemic proof. You know, even if God forbid we lock down again, people you know, artists can work from home. So, so uh, I just think it's, it's great. It's a beautiful medium and uh, it's a, it's the incredible tradition um, that's evolved, you know, technology here. Um, not everything has to be hand drawn anymore, um, but uh, yeah, overall it was a great experience. I learned so much and I'm, and traveled the world. With that film.
1: I'll say, and for, and for those that haven't seen it, the cast, I mean, you have, you have, Jeremy Renner, Heidi Klum, James Franco, but two of my favorite actors, John Cleese and Angelica Houston. I was just like when I saw that when I saw the credits, I said, "John Cleese and Angelica Houston, this ought to be interesting." And, he, and I knew exactly who they were playing when they started to speak. I was just like, "Wow, that is that is just amazing <laughs> that you're able to get John Cleese plays the villain Otto von Waris, and whoever wrote this must have been a um, Spider-Man fan with Dr. Octopus. That's all I can say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, there's definitely nods to different things that inspired us. And, and yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, that that level of talent is always interesting to watch, to experience. You know, Angelica Houston is such a sweet soul and, you know, part of, a, you know, just a part of, cinematic history. Like she's just such an icon. And um yeah, it it was great chatting with her and talking about being half Italian, what that's like, and we had that connection. Um and John Cleese uh was so professional. He just brought so much to it and asked questions and he was uh he was a consummate professional and that's you know, um yeah there were there was those pinch me moments when, you know, I'd be at the studio, and Alec Baldwin would call on the phone and, you know, talk to reception, and then, like, there was those, those moments. But that's the beauty of animation. Some of it, you know, like, he was in the Hamptons, and he just walked over to his local studio, and we were all on Skype. And uh, and we just did some of that virtually, um, pre-pandemic. So we were, we were already kind of, like, working that way. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was a fun experience. I, I've only recently thought back on, some of those uh, moments there and uh yeah with gratitude for sure
1: and speaking of i was looking at imdb you have another thing that you're producing that's in production lamborghini
0: yeah that um i'm not directly involved with that but uh yeah i am on as one of the exec producers that that was a long (laughs) a long story but essentially to to give you the truncated version um I was invited to Italy to accept an award after looking for Angelina and one of at the women, a time women in the world in Bologna, Italy. And they had given me an award. And one of the presenters was Tonino Lamborghini, who's spiritual son. And he took pride in Anyway, he gave me a book that he wrote about his dad's life. And it was just incredible. It was the the, you know, the ultimate underdog story. For me, it was Rocky, right? It was mm-hmm. guy comes out of the war with nothing and just builds this empire it was like the embodiment of the american dream and um and then eventually you know once the uh the group was producing it took it on it sort of took on a life of its own and and it went in a different direction and i wanted to uh you know focus on my directing so um so yeah that's where it's sort of uh where it's uh where it sits now but uh it's a great story and it's one that needs to be told. And I'm excited to, uh, to see it all come together and see the final film.
1: Well, when I saw the cast list, I was looking at it. Frank Grillo, uh, Maria Sorvino, um, Ga- Ga- Gabriel Byrne. I was just like, wait a minute. Already you had me at Frank Grillo, <laughs> you know, just being interested in the <laughs> film. And, and, and also the story is just like, well, it's just all be interesting, you know, to go through. So I'm looking forward to it when it does come out. And, um, but you said Snap Productions. You are Snap. It's it's, it's really it's S N A P. What what does the S N A P stand for? Do you know?
0: Sergio Navaretta, Alessandra Pichon. So my partner Alessandra is a writer and producer, and we joined forces, and and now we uh, we develop. Uh, she writes. Uh, we produce together, and uh, yeah, it's really a uh, creative hub. Um, you know, we're, we've always been passionate about making socially conscious films that make an impact, and, uh, you know, we've stayed true to that that original vision. And, um, yeah, I'm excited for the future, you know, because there's so many different ways now to tell a story, whether it's limited series or feature film or tip series. So we're, we sort of have our hands in, in several pots, um, developing several different things. But, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm totally excited for what's to come.
1: Oh, I am too. And what, what do you have? What do you, can, what can you talk about that you're working on now as a director? Anything, anything in the, the hopper, so to speak?
0: Yeah. I just signed on to a movie called elephant in the room that, uh, uh, is about a mother and son. The son has autism and it's really him coming into his own and, and discovering who he is. And, um, we signed on to that a couple weeks ago. We optioned, uh, a book uh, by a best-selling crime author and it's another iconic Canadian figure um, that we're developing a series around and Alessandra's writing a animated feature film which is about female empowerment ultimately but uh, um, yeah so there, there's a few things cooking for sure and uh, you know with the nature of the business evolving and changing so quickly and the pandemic uh one never knows when things are going to go and when they're not but uh i'm used to that so uh so yeah i'm, I'm uh i'm totally excited to continue on this journey of exploration
1: and, and who did you say signed on for elephants in the room again because it broke up a little bit there
0: oh we we uh i, I just signed on to it a couple of weeks ago uh, okay. but we're still exploring exploring cast. uh opportunities and uh it's very early stages so there'll there'll be more to come on that i think there's going to be an official announcement about that film next month or this month in october in the trades
1: oh good so when this comes out people will be able to look because this will come out in november so it'll be right after people can look it up and see who's who's going to be involved in elephants in the room and um and hopefully and hopefully everything goes well to production and stuff like that and for people that want to follow you to see where you're what's coming out next where can they go
0: um i'm on instagram uh, sergio Navaretta, uh two rs two t's i'm on uh facebook uh my website is uh com, and um all my information is there so um you know on all the upcoming things and uh and we post some of these uh, some of our interviews as well which is great
1: excellent and uh, i'm I want to thank you for joining me. You know, talking about cinema and about your movies and your film work. Um, is there anything else that you want to um, talk about that led you to go to where you, what you're doing now, or any movies that you'd recommend to people that are that are out now besides your besides your own?
0: <laughs> <laughs> besides my own, um, yeah. I mean, since uh, I guess in the last six months, I haven't watched many films, unfortunately, um, but. Uh, you know, it's it's something that I hope to do once things settle for me a bit, reignite the love of why I do what I do. And uh, that's always important. So, uh, But I want to thank you, Steven, so much. Uh, it was such a, a pleasure and an honor to, to be part of this. And thank you for the deep dive. You know, I, I wasn't expecting you to know everything about me and the short films and, and uh, you know, all the projects that I, I had the pleasure of being a part of. And um, it was just so in depth and I, I really appreciate your passion uh, for it. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you in the future.
1: Well, thank you. And, and the honor was really mine, you know, cause it's every time I talk to filmmakers like yourself, it just opens up my eyes. And I think it hopefully opens up the eyes for th- those of us that are in the audience of what goes into the creative process and get, get that understanding of what people are doing and, and realize not everything has to come from Hollywood. It comes from all over the world and, and there's great content out there. If you're willing to find it, especially nowadays when it's so much easier to find than when I was growing up.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. As the industry evolves and changes, storytelling will always be there, whether it's TikTok or, or whatever, you know, it, it's, it's all the same. We're, we're moving people. We're sharing stories and, uh, and it's a privilege every day that I, I try not to ever take for granted. So I'm really, I'm really grateful to, to be a part of it. And, and, you know, I thank people like you that are so passionate and audiences that continue to want to see films. So it's, uh, it's a give and take.
1: Well, thank you again. And listeners, um, join us next episode. we we'll are either be doing a movie decided by the roll of a die or another interview or we'll be continuing our James Whale well retrospective and exit out of this, I'm gonna play the trailer for the Cuban, so that way it gives you a little bit of a taste of the music that we were talking about. And like I said, go see the film, I recommend it. It's a good film to watch.
0: His name is Luis, and he used to be this famous musician back in Cuba. He even played the Cotton Club. He played with Bowza, Machito, Dizzy Gillespie. And he told you all of this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really
1: play with all these people? Ladies and gentlemen, El
0: Guitarrista! Oh, cool. All this nonsense. He's <sighs> a Kuman boy. Am I right?
1: Is that you?
0: Yeah, we've known
1: each other a long time since we uh, A Forgotten legend.
0: And you're sure it's him? You don't have time to talk to your dad. He enjoys company. He's a drunk things are not so simple well why not why can't they be simple you must follow our care
1: approach miss ayub it's created for a reason
0: he's a human being we gave him an injection oh, it was doctor's oh. orders ah! is still a dying man you need to wrap your head around but that but
1: that doesn't mean he can't live now
0: and new are teachers. we teach people how to love